How are we doing, guys? Everybody good? Man, we are so honored that you are here. It's, um, it's, it's such a privilege to have you um, literally come to Anderson. Uh, ten years ago, this was a cow pasture, um, literally. And, and this is, God's just done some incredible stuff. And we're honored and humbled. And none of us here are experts. We're like what the Bible says in Acts 4.13, unschooled ordinary men who Jesus set on fire, and we've never gotten over the cross. And so um, that's what we hope you see today. Before we get started, um, I, 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 many people listen to podcasts, and they watch sermons and stuff, and they go, um, you talk about your daughter and your wife so much, but we've never seen them. I don't think they're real. So before we even really get started this morning, I want to introduce you to my wife and my little girl, Lucretia and Karis. Would you come out here for a second? All right. All right. Now, you said you said you wanted to wave at everybody, so you go ahead and wave at everybody, baby. Go ahead and wave at everybody, Kira. Say hey. <laughs> All right. Now, she will talk about this for the rest of the day. Are you having fun today? Did you like this? All right. Can you give me a hug? All right. You'd be good. I got to give my wife a hug, too, because <clears throat> dang. Anyway, so there you go. All right. Showing a little bit too much belly there, baby. Take you, I'll take you. You don't want to, you don't. You. You, you got to leave now. Uh, hey, can you, can you wave bye-bye? Can you wait? Blow them, kiss, blow them kisses. That's all anybody's going to remember about Unleash, baby, is you. <laughs> pastor's kid. All right. <laughs> she's two and a half, and she, she's going on 18. Pastor's kid. God, I pray she's not a typical pastor's kid. You know why the pastor's kids are so weird, don't you? And play with the deacon's kids. Anyway, <laughs> if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Joshua chapter 5. I don't know if you did your homework. Some of you read Genesis 34, and you're like, Dinah and the Shechemites. Hmm. Never saw that one in Sunday school in Funnel Graph, and uh, probably didn't. Don't really know how to illustrate that story. But we're going to have a lot of fun today. I want to I set this up, and I brought Karis out for a reason. I kind of wanted to set it up this way. Uh, the 4th of July is, is big here in Anderson. We have a lake. This is a lake community. So on the 4th of July, um, especially here in the south, for those of you from up north, we look for any reason to blow something up here in the south. And so we... We, 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 and eat. So if we can blow something up and eat a lot of food on the same day, that's why we love the 4th of July. It has nothing to do with our nation's independence. And, and so I have a friend and he's got a lake house and, and his mother is one of the best cooks in the world. And she just, she literally stays in the kitchen and cooks food all day long, cobblers and just, I mean, just unbelievable. And, and my prayer every year is that God will lay it on his heart to invite me up there. And every time he does, I pray about going for about 0.2 seconds. Then I say yes. And so every year, my wife and I and, and Karis, we, we kind of go up to his lake house. So this past year, we went up to his lake house. And um, he was like, you, you want to ride on, on, you know, go on a ride around the lake? We we're like, yeah. So we went down and got on the boat. Karis had never been on a boat. She loved the boat. She's going crazy on the boat. And... And we came to this cliff, and, and, you know, and so we got off the boat, and there was a lot of people on the boat, and mostly young kids, and so they all started climbing to the top of this cliff, cliff and jumping off. They were just kind of jumping off the cliff. 
And, and I was like, well, that, that kind of looks fun. You know, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I like fast speeds. I love adrenaline rushes. And so I, I climbed to the top of the cliff thinking that maybe I would jump too. That looked like a lot of fun. And I don't know if you've ever had an oh crap moment, but I, I, got to the, I got to the top of the cliff and I looked over and I was like, ain't no dang way. Like, and, and, you know, and I, I kind of backed off, and my buddy was like, why don't you jump? And I was like, <clears throat> I, um, I don't, because I don't feel, feel like it, really. And li- little kids are, are coming up next to me, five and six years old, and they're jumping off the rock. One little girl, I promise you, she's 11 years old. She came up to me. She said, Perry, are you going to jump? I went, no. She said, are you scared? And I said, maybe. She said, I'll hold your hand. So I punched her in the throat. I know I, I, I didn't. So they're all jumping, and, and I, I, back, I backed off. Like, I, I was, I was kind of walking down the cliff. Well, while this is going on, Lucretia takes Karis, and she's down at the bottom with my two. She had just turned two. And she, Karis, two years old, watching all these people jump off this cliff. And she looks at, she looks at Lucretia, and she said, Mommy, I want to jump. And Lucretia said, You want to jump off that cliff? And Karis said, Yes, ma'am. So Lucretia starts bringing her up the cliff. I'm coming down. We meet halfway, and I'm like, Where the heck are you going with our little girl? She, she and she said, she wants to jump. I'm like, she ain't jumping. She's like, why? And, I, cause I, and, and listen, this is not, not a parenting seminar. I probably will never get asked to teach one after this particular illustration. But I think a lot of times parents won't let their kids do something because they, they were afraid to do it, and so they, they don't want their kids to outdo them. It's kind of like one generation in church really condemns the next generation in church because they're doing something that they didn't have the guts to do in the first place. But we'll talk about that later. So... Um, so, so I was like, I, I don't, and, and God spoke to my heart and said, you don't want to be the kind of dad that lets your fears hold your child back. And I was like, well, all you got to do, just take her up there then. Take her up there and let her look off the cliff. Because once she looks off the cliff, she won't want to jump. And so literally, we both climb up there, and Lecre- we're standing there. And I was like, no, you walk around on the edge. I've already been there. I'm not going back. And <laughs> Lucretia walks around on the edge, and they kind of looked over the cliff. And, and Lucretia went, you still want to jump? And she went, yes, ma'am. So I was like, um, okay, let's put, let's put a life preserver on her or something. So we got one of those ski jackets, and I put it on her so tight like she was turning blue, um, like she couldn't breathe, and, like, and I was like, she's ready. And so, so then we're standing there, and I had this thought. i got to jump because my two-year-old is about to jump. And everybody's going, what would you do on the 4th of July? And I was like, I was a wuss. So I... I so I just knew I was going to die, so I kind of, you know, said, here I come, Lord Jesus, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I jumped <laughs> off the rock, and, and I got in the water, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking up at my daughter, and I'm like, there's no way she's going to jump. In fact, when I was in the water, this is the, this is the side I saw, this is the first picture. She's standing on the edge of this cliff, and there's Lucretia going, see, Daddy, he just died. Um, and... and <laughs> And Karis is standing there, and I'm like, there's no way she's going to jump. And so I counted one, two, three, and this is the next picture. This is the next picture. She jumped. Now, when she jumped, she kind of went a little forward too much, and so she smacked the water. So the next picture um, is kind of, can can we get that? that, That's, yeah, she didn't. And that's just a Sasquatch in the water holding her. But <laughs> guys, take that off. Thank you. <laughs> I never, I never will forget that day. I never, I never ever will forget that day because, because. And I, by the way, I climbed back up and jumped off one more time just to just to prove to myself. And I'm, I'll probably never do it again. 
But, but the, the deal is, I, I left that day thinking, um, you know, that was a lesson in parenting. But that night as I'm laying in bed, I'm like, that's a lesson in church leadership. Because I think many times as leaders, God takes us right to the edge of a cliff. And he'll go, jump. And here's the thing I'm discovering about leadership as I observe church world. If we don't jump, the next generation will. The next generation. And here's what's so weird about me. I'm 38 years old. I'm right in the middle of, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing what these guys are doing, and I'm seeing what these guys are doing, and both kind of make me un- feel uncomfortable. But I'm saying as church leaders, if we really want to reach this world, which, by the way, I really do think is possible, we've got to learn to jump. We've got to learn to face uncomfortable situations. We've got to learn to walk up to the edge of the cliff and go, I don't, you know, I understand the law of gravity, and I understand physics, and I understand that's water, and I understand I could drown, and I understand this could kill me. But you know what? Somebody Somebody's going to jump. It might as well be the church. My gosh, aren't you tired of the church being outdone by Disney and GE and Microsoft, who, by the way, do not have the Holy Spirit? They should be looking at the church, for an example, rather than us looking to them. But the reason why is because church leaders a long time ago forgot how to jump. So we're going to go to the book of Joshua, and and I'm going to talk about four factors this morning. Four factors, if you want to write these down. By the way, if you're online and you're watching, hey, hey guys, online, all over um, the world, I I think, I don't know where you're watching from, wherever you have a computer. Um, But four factors, if you want to write these down, and uh, this isn't rocket science, and I didn't even alliterate these, even though I come from a Southern Baptist background. We'll talk more about that later. Um, I'd love to make fun of the Baptists. Anyway, four factors that, that we're going to write down today and really examine out of the book of Joshua and the book of Genesis. Number one is what I call the desperation factor. The desperation factor. The desperation factor. Now, some of us know something about How many of you are single guys? You are single guys. You're not dating. You're not, they, they, every one of these guys know about the desperation factor. Look at that. Look at that. Desperation factor right there. Dear God. Anyway, the the desperation factor. Now, I ask you, for those of you that that followed Twitter or the blog or whatever, I ask you to to read the first six chapters of Joshua. Isn't the book of Joshua one of the most inspiring books in the Bible? Like, you got chapter 1. Chapter 1's cool because God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. That's a great verse. We've preached on that verse, right? Do not let this book of law depart from you. and Meditate on it day and night, and you'll be prosperous and successful. See, we like that stuff. And in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends out the spies. Now, I'm just going to ask this and I'm going to move because we've never preached a sermon on this. But remember the spies go to Rahab's house and that whole conversation. Has anybody never found it funny that the two spies wound up at the home of a prostitute? See, this is why you know the Bible's true. I don't think they were surprised. Hey, oh, 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 you're a hoe. I mean, I don't think... Stay with me. Preach that Sunday, by the way, guys. I mean, I, oh, we had no idea. We were just kind of walking by the, anyway, um, anyway so, so they wound up at Rahab's house and the whole thing, and then, and then Joshua 3 and 4, that's pretty cool, right? The crossing of the Jordan. I mean, the same thing that God did for the Red Sea, the same thing he did for one generation, he did for the next generation. I mean, the same God, he can do the same miracles. He, I mean, he crossed the Jordan. And I, I'll guarantee you that when they crossed the Jordan, there probably wasn't a skeptic with him. There probably wasn't, I don't know, I don't know, man, I don't know. Saw this on the Discovery Channel, Joshua. I think, I think you had the whole thing rigged. I mean, I think it was legit. I think they walked across the Jordan, and they got on the other side of the Jordan. And then... Joshua 5 happens. Now, I remember reading this about six months ago, and this, to me, it, just, it was one of the most uncomfortable 
text in the scriptures that I've ever read. And here we go. We're going to pick it up in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when the Amorite, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So God made all these people scared. Now, this is very important because of verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So, Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. See, all the women are like, yes, preach it. And all the men are like, no, no, I'll... Circumcision. Circumcision back in these days. I'm not talking about circumcision today. If you get your child circumcised, you know, he's two or three days old. He, I mean, he's not bitter about the whole thing. He just forgot it. You know what I'm saying? He don't, he don't even care. I'm talking back in, back in the, this would have been men between the ages of like 20 and 60. There were over 600,000 of them. By the way, for those of you that think leadership is easy, God told Joshua to do it. With a flint knife. Next. Hey, Bob. It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Not really. Just for those that think leadership is easy. And I'm just, don't get mad. I'm just preaching the Bible. This is in the Bible. See, a lot of people think the Bible's G-rated. It is in C-17, I'm telling you. So, 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 oh, God. Yeah, okay, so, so circumcision, back in these, no Novocaine, no painkillers. See, I know there's women going, big deal, I had a baby. Yeah, you had drugs. Be quiet. Just let, just let us, let, let the men be babies for a minute. Back in these days, um, circumcision was a much bigger deal than it is now. And God told them they had to do it. God told them. They're, they're, now, now, now here's, what, here's what else is crazy. If you go back to Genesis 34, there's a story in the scripture about circumcision. Uh, Dinah and the Shechemites. And some of you read that. Now, long story short, um, Dinah is, is, is a daughter, um, and she goes, she goes out one day, and this guy, the Bible says he violated her. We don't really know what happened, if he, if he raped her, if they just decided to have sex. We don't know what happened. And, and, and so here comes the, the father, and he kind of goes, well, you know, this shouldn't have happened or whatever. And, and, and so the two brothers, there's two brothers, I think the main one's the Simeon and Levi. They come along, and they said, well, here's the deal. If you want to marry our sister, then he, they told the guy that had violated her, whatever that was, they told the guy, they said, if you want to marry our sister, you and every man in your village has to get circumcised. Now, I, I, you know, there's some pretty women on the planet. I'm just saying, you know what? There's other fish in the sea, you know? I'm, I'm just saying. And so the guy, he's evidently in love with this woman. He's like, you know, okay, that's a great idea. He goes and tells every man in his village, we're all getting circumcised, which I'm sure every guy was like, sign me. I mean, he probably got him drunk first. So, so. They all get circumcised, and the Bible says in Genesis 34, three days later, when they were still in pain, Simeon and Levi, just two men, took a sword into that village or into that small city and killed every man. Killed every man. 
Like every man was, every man was murdered because, because they couldn't fight. They, they were in pain. They're laying there going, somebody's coming with a sword. Dear God, help me. Dear God, help me. And the wife is sitting there going, I can't help. I mean, I don't even know. You're, so, so they couldn't fight because circumcision, I mean, you think it's painful now. I mean, and don't, I'm, don't raise your hand if you've had that. I'm just saying, that, you think it's painful now. Back then, with a flint knife and no medicine to numb the pain, we're talking some serious issues here. Two men put an entire city to death three days after circumcision. So, so, so some of you are like, now why is he talking? Like, I thought you said this was a cool conference and you said it was a little weird, but I don't even understand why we're talking about this. Here's, here's, stay with me. They're on, the, the Israelites are on this side of the Jordan, right? At first, they're on this side of the Jordan. They're, they're in the desert for 40 years and then they come into the territory, the Bible says of Og and Bashan, the, the, the kings, and they defeat the kings on this side of the Jordan. And so on this side of the Jordan, everything's kind of in order. Everything's kind of safe. Everything's very predictable. Here's my question. Why didn't God let them get circumcised on this side of the Jordan? Instead, he performed a miracle. The, 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 the Jordan River opening up, that's a miracle. God brought them to a place. Then he closed the Jordan River where they were completely exposed and vulnerable to their enemies. And then God said, now I want you circumcised. Now I want you circumcised. And they were like, I mean, I mean, if I'm a strategist, just a pure strategist, I'm going, okay, God, here's the deal. This does not make sense. Have you read Genesis 34, what happened to the guys? Three days? That was two guys with swords. And God, on this side of the Jordan, the Bible says there are seven, more, seven nations larger and more powerful than us. So if we're going to get circumcised, God, why don't you let us go back to the safe place? Why don't you just reopen the Jordan? Why don't you just let us go back over here and let us get circumcised in a place where everything is safe, everything is predictable, everything is nice, everything is organized. But God said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to cross the Jordan and I'm going to do something marvelous in your midst and I'm going to bring you to a place where you are completely exposed and completely vulnerable so that you learn how to be desperate for me because on this side of the Jordan if I don't move in to provide for you and I don't move in to protect you you're going to get killed God brought them to a place and marked them so they had to be desperate for God because without his provision and without his protection after the circumcision they were nothing more than open targets for the enemy to come in and wipe out. Here's a question, church leader. When's the last time you were desperate for God? When's the last time we as church leaders were desperate for the presence of God? Because I'll tell you, the one thing I'm learning more and more and more and more is church leaders want safe and predictable. Oh my gosh. I mean, I mean, if I'm in the crowd, I'm just going to be as honest as I know how to be. If I'm in the crowd, I'm like, can we, can we go back to the other side? Heck, they, they actually had people among the Israelites that, that were like, hey, we're going to elect a leader and lead us back to slavery. All because they were unwilling to be desperate for God. When was the last time that we were desperate for God? Because here's the thing I believe. I believe God will constantly put us in uncomfortable situations. And the problem with a lot of churches is we're not willing to get uncomfortable. When's the last time you were desperate for God? Church planner. Let me tell you something about planning a church. 
if you're planting a church. You will be tested financially at some point within the first year of planting your church. It's going to happen. It happened with us. I mean, we're, man, I'm, I'm so good at this church planning stuff. Like, have you ever heard the thing where they tell you that, like, the core team that you start with, like, half of them will be gone in two years? Have you ever heard that? And it's true. Okay, it, it took me two months. I mean, I, I ran them off. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm fast. I'm like, let's get this thing over with. It took me two months to run those people off. But I remember before we even started the church, we had a guy in the church, no lie, he gave 65% of the budget. 65% of the budget. Like, like, as a church planner, I knew who in the church had a job, what they made, and when their tithe check was coming in. I knew, I knew it. I knew it. There he goes, so-and-so, he's going to give $75 this week. He missed one week. I called him. <laughs> coming back next week? Bringing $150? I mean, I, I mean seriously. <laughs> this guy gave 65% of the budget. 65, which was mostly my salary when we started the church. And so one night he called me and he said, I need you to come to my house. So I went to his house. He sat me down. He said, me and my wife have been talking. We don't think we're going to be with you anymore. I was like, uh, I'm, <clears throat> can you tell me why? He's like, we don't really agree with the direction the church is going. And you know, let me tell you something. He was nice, he was kind, he was honorable. He did not, you know, beat me up, malign me, start a blog. I don't, blogging didn't even exist in 2000, I don't think. I, he didn't do anything like that. And when I left that night, I mean, that, there was that nagging thought. What if you just walk back in there and ask him what he wanted in the church? But then, then there was that fire in me that said, you know what? He didn't die for the church. I'm telling you, God's going to test you financially. One of the problems in the church is everybody, like there's a lot of businessmen in the church. Let me tell you something. If you're a businessman, praise God for your business sense. Your problem is that you don't have a lot of faith, and so you want everything to make financial sense when God in Scripture never has made sense. How many of you are treasurers or controllers or secretaries? You're over the money. Would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Yeah, a few. Welcome, Judas. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you're following God, your back will always be against the wall financially. And that's sad because we got churches in America today. By the way, let me talk about this for just a second. This is a pet peeve. We got churches in America today that have $500 in their youth budget and tell the kids to go out and raise money at car washes but have over 200000 in their cemetery fund. That's why there's more life in the cemetery than there is in that church. What, what do you call that, Pat? I call that sin. Why even have a cemetery fund? They don't care. <laughs> like, what the? I mean, seriously, they don't care. What if somebody comes and sees the grave? Well, if they're so concerned about it, tell them to clean it up. Spend the money on ministry. Dead people, not ministry. Anyway, that's another pet peeve. Um, <laughs> back against the wall. I remember when we moved, when, when, when we, were, we were meeting in a, in, the, in a building at Anderson University called the Sullivan Building. We were meeting in the Sullivan Building. And it was time to move to the Fine Arts Center. 
And I, I, I'd never taken a big offering before. I didn't know anything about capital campaigns or special offerings or, or dinners with big, you know, big money people or whatever. Um, and so I, I was just like, okay, I, I just preached on money. And I said, we need money, and, and we need to take up an offering. And that night, we had a Sunday night service, and 52 people gave $26,000. And I was like, man, that's good. Everybody's like, woohoo, praise God. No, it wasn't praise God. We needed 45. So everybody's over here celebrating 20, 20, you know, $26,000. I'm over here crapping my pants because we need 19 more. Have you ever, told, have you ever got an argument with God going, you got me into this. I don't know what you were thinking, but you got I me. Mean, I was fine. I was going to work in the restaurant industry. I was going to cook steaks, and you called me out of that, and that's great. But now I need 19,000. God, I'd, I'd never even seen $19,000. I was poor. I was so poor, I had to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and lick other people's fingers. That's how poor I was. I was poor. I was poor. Everybody's like, you married a doctor. No, uh When I married her, she was a med student. She had school loans. I mean, we had, well, I mean, we were broke. And I remember God laying it on. We went down to a bank, and we, I, we were borrowing night, and they were like, will you sign? I was like, yeah, sign. I mean, we, I mean you're not going to get anything if we can't pay it anyway. You know, I mean, I, just, I didn't know. And I didn't sleep for three nights. I remember hiring Lee McDermott. We hired him. I took him to lunch. I, I asked him one day. He was a college student. By the way, college students are cheap. He was a college student. I said, what are your plans? After, like, what are you doing after graduation? He said, going to lunch with my parents. Lovely. I took him to the bagel shop. I bought him a bagel. Spent two bucks on him. And I, it was like 48% of the church budget. And I said, Lee, I said, here's the deal. I said, I got some good news and bad news. I said, the good news is I want you to come on our staff and lead worship for us. He said, what's the bad news? I said, we can't pay you. Like, we can't even buy your guitar strings, bro. We don't, we don't have anything. We can't pay you. He's like, um, what am I going to I was like, we'll get you a job. We'll get you a job at Sonic. You can put on roller skates and skate out to people's cars. Like, hey, dog, what's up? Here's the cheeseburger. Sing him a song. I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> so he agreed to take the job. And then I'm sitting with a meeting with, with some of the leaders in the church, and we, we came to the decision, if this is who God wants, let's just pay him. And let's just pay him a full-time salary. And let's pay his insurance, too, because most people in the church, their attitude is, God, if you'll keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. So we brought him on staff and paid him. And it was great until July hit of 2000. And the budget, I mean, like, the, the church secretary brought me the checkbook and said, this is what, I mean, I, I, and I, I, they said, what do you do? I said, I don't know. I guess we're just going to have to pray. Because we were broke as a church. And the next three weeks in July, when the summer is supposed to be down, our giving increased like, a, like 100, 110% over the next three weeks. And we had enough money to pay the salaries, and we never have missed paying a salary for anybody. But it was a test. Some of you are looking at a staff member right now going, I can't afford to. And I would tell you, you can't afford not to. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's a lot of churches today, it's impossible for them to please God. Because God has brought them to the place of desperation. And they're going, God, if you're going to circumcise me, I would rather go on the other side where it's safe and predictable. Number two, the sacrifice factor. The sacrifice factor. Um, now, Joshua was a great leader. If you can get 600,000 men 
to buy into this plan. That's a great leader. No, no, let me read this again. Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to just read verse 2 and 3. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. Now, let me, let me ask you this question. What do you think that church service looked like when Joshua, the pastor, come and declared the vision to the men? Like Joshua walks in and everybody's got their Bibles open and they've got, they've got like their notepads and they're ready to take some notes. And they're like, he's been with God. This is going to be incredible. He's got a fresh word. This is going to be amazing. And, and Joshua goes, God has spoken to me. And they're all like, yes, he has. And then Joshua shares the vision and all the men are like, I think God might be calling me to start a church. Um, Like, like you, you, have you ever preached a sermon, pastor, and nobody said amen? Like, nobody? Like, like the, it was like they weren't even there. Like, you could have preached naked, and people would have left going, I don't even know, what, something was different about him today. I'm not even sure what that was. <laughs> like, when Joshua came out and said, this is what God said, and he shared this vision, nobody went, yes! That is the key to our success! <laughs> One day, my grandchildren are going to ask me, grandfather... What was the one thing that brought us into this land? And I'm going to say, went and see Joshua one day, had a knife. (laughs) Every Israelite man, don't miss this, loved the idea of progress. Everybody in the church today loves the idea of progress. It's the sacrifice part we have a problem with. Josh was like, we're going to take over a land. Amen. We're going to have wells we did not dig. That's right. We're going to live in houses we did not build. Amen. We're going we're to drink of vineyards that we did not. And if you're Baptist, I'm sure it was non-alcoholic vineyards. We're going to drink of vineyards we did not plant. That's right, Joshua, preach. And Joshua goes, now here's what it's going to cost. And they were like, ah, the desert was, the slavery wasn't that bad. Didn't mind the whips. Everybody loves the idea of progress. Well, most people love the idea of progress. But few people love to hear about the sacrifice that it's going to cost them. One of the problems as a church, and listen, I'm not talking to old school churches. I'm talking to every church is if we want to get to where God wants us to go, we've got to let him take us to a place where we're vulnerable and we're desperate for him. But when we get to that place, it's not about what we can get from God. It's about what we can give up for God to get to the next level where he wants us to go. It's all about the sacrifice. And when it comes to sacrifice, leaders go first. Leaders go first. There's two things we got to sacrifice. If you want to write this down, the first is our comforts. The first is our comforts. Um, my wife is a little spoiled. I'm just going to go ahead and admit it. I, it's my job to spoil my wife. I think it is a man's job to spoil his wife. It is your job, men, to spoil your wife. That means... Whatever your wife wants, she just gets it. 
That's a word from the Lord. Some women just got happy right there. That, that, so like what she wants, she gets. So one of the things that Lucretia loves is a, she loves a foot rub. She loves for us to sit on the couch. I take some lotion. I put it on her feet, and I massage her feet for like 30 minutes. We just talk. And, and she's gotten me recently where I massage her calves, too. She's like, can you massage my calves? I was like, baby, I can do anything you want me. I mean, I was massaging the calves. Some of you ladies are like, I know why you're doing that. Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> Never heard a pastor talk like that. Well, maybe your pastor wasn't happy. <laughs> Stay with me. So one night, men, have you, men, I just I can't even believe I'm saying this. Man, have you ever just felt in the zone? Like you knew it was going to be a great night, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> She's like, can you rub my feet? I was like, baby, I'll rub your feet. We sat on the couch. We watched Law and Order. That used to be our show. <laughs> I was rubbing her feet. We were talking, and I was... Man, I was, I was just spitting some mad game. I mean, I, I, was, I was on a roll. She said, I'm going to go take a shower and slip into something more comfortable. I said, you do that. <laughs> she got up and she walked in the bathroom and I was like dancing. I was like, uh-huh, I'm about to lose my mind up in here. Up in here. Y'all should not know that song, you bunch of evil people. So I heard the water come on in the shower, and then I heard this. And then I heard nothing. I was like, what's going on in the shower? I heard nothing for a few minutes, literally a few minutes. So I got up. I was like, I'm going to walk in there and check. I said, it'd be funny if she fell. <laughs> I pulled back the curtain, and she had fallen and she was just laying in the shower. She was conscious. I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just laying here. I was like, this is a new way to take a shower? Because women are different. Now, I understand. I mean, women are very different. Before I got married, before I got married, I had a bar of soap and some shampoo in the shower. Once Lucretia came in, I had 78 things in my shower. She's like, I'm fine. I was like, how did you fall? She's like, well, you know, you rubbed my feet. As soon as the water hit that lotion, <laughs> my feet just came out completely. I was like, huh. I mean, I... And then I started thinking about that in church leadership. <laughs> You'll get an illustration out of anything. Yes, I will. Some church leaders, listen to me. You're here. Satan's rubbing your feet. You are completely comfortable where you are in your church. And you're so comfortable and you're thinking, man, this is God. And no, it's Satan rubbing your feet. And he's not rubbing your feet because he's your friend. He's rubbing your feet to set you up for a fall that's going to hurt. And not only is that fall going to affect you, it's going to affect so many other people. All because we desire to be comfortable. I'm telling you, man, we got to cut loose our desire to be comfortable in the church. That means we got to be willing to give up our personal preferences. That means 
See, one of the problems in the church today is we would rather have people just come back every week rather than have their lives changed. I said it last year, I'll say it again, we're more concerned with attendance than we are repentance. And as long as they come back every week, we don't care how they live. That's why people can come to the same church for 20 years and never change. Some of the meanest people I ever met are in church. Ever. Ever. Like, like, like ever. Ever. I remember my first deacons meeting. Ever. <laughs> ever. Me- because, because we're so concerned. I remember standing in this sanctuary one, one Sunday right back here. Brand new people came to church. I'm talking to them. They're talking to me. And, they, and I, said to, I said this. I can't even believe I said this. I said, I hope you enjoy the church service today. And they walked in and God spoke to my heart and said, what if I don't want them to enjoy it? What if I want to make them mad? What if I want to piss them off? I might make them walk out. You might not believe this, but we have people walk out of a New Spring service every week. Every week. Which, by the way, you always should pick the part that you walk out. Like, I was literally one Sunday preaching about masturbation. You preach about that? Yeah, it's, it's wrong. Shouldn't do that. Like, like we, we just deal with the issue. Pastors are like, why are you preaching about masturbation? Because there isn't a man in your church that hadn't wrestled with it. Well, I talk about the holiness of God. Well, you can't get there masturbating. So that's why we talk about it. <laughs> I'm preaching. I said something wrong. I was in masturbation. Two guys got up as soon as I said it and walked out. I'm like, I wouldn't have walked out there. <laughs> Might have waited. Really, we, we, want, we want people to enjoy our church services when God might want to disturb them. We got to be willing. We got to be willing to let uncomfortable things happen in our churches. I mean, I'm talking uncomfortable. A few weeks ago, we had a kid show up, fifth grade, and they walked back to our children's area. Back to, I th- one of the, one, we got rooms labeled back there. I think it's Shockwave. I don't even know. It's my favorite room. It's got all the video games in it. We got video games. We, we do all this, and, all, and we, had, you know, we, we bring kids in. This kid, it was his first time here. Might have been his first time in church. I mean, it was, I mean, I mean, he's in fifth grade, he's wearing a wife beater, all right? I mean, that, I mean, I mean he, he, I'm not making this up. And he walks in with his friend, and he kind of looks around all our equipment. He said, you guys have a PS3? And our leader said, yes, yeah, we, we've got a PS3. You guys have a Wii? Like, yeah, we have a Wii. Like, you guys have Guitar Hero? Like, yeah, we have Guitar Hero. And this kid looks at his friend and says out loud in the whole room, this is awesome. <laughs> now, could that happen in your church? Would y'all, I mean, so some churches like the WMU would get that kid. <laughs> the soap committee, if you will. Take him to the bank. You don't speak like that, young man. Talking like you can't say the S word. Washing his mouth out with soap. We said, what'd you do to that kid? Well, I mean, we marked him. We're going to bring him on staff one day. <laughs> and we said, that should be the slogan of our children's ministry. New Spring, this is awesome. I mean, I... I... <laughs> see, see, here's the deal. You got to be comfortable with that. 
the church has to be comfortable with somebody lost acting like they're lost. We've got to get out of the business of trying to legislate their behavior. They can't act like they know Christ because they don't know Christ. We've got to let them show up wearing whatever they want to wear. They can have pierced whatever they want to have pierced. They can have as many tattoos as they want to have. We're just glad they're in the house of God. We had a, I have a friend one time, he was pastor in a church. Remember those lapel mics? Some of you still use them. I'm not cracking. I just can't use them because I do my hands like this. Now I just throw the lapel mic off. And it was one of those services, you know, when you, you got a code for the sound man to cut the lapel mic off. It's usually you raise your hand. You know, there's always, everybody thinks you're spiritual. And it's always a code when a pastor raises his hand. So he's given the invitation. You remember when, when you, old school invitation, maybe you still do that where everybody sings and you're hoping nobody comes forward because if somebody comes forward, you're going to have to sing and sing and sing and sing and sing every verse of just that you're going to sing. And so he's standing down and he had just preached this message on how Jesus Christ will save you no matter who you are, no matter how bad of a sinner you are, Jesus Christ will save you if you just call on the name of the Lord Jesus and he will save you. He's standing down front. Sound man forgot to put his lapel mic or cut his lapel mic off and, and a guy walks down the aisle and he said, he, and, and the guy said, what are you here for? And he said, I'm here to be saved. You said Jesus would save me. I'm, I'm here to be saved. And my friend said, well, do you want to pray or do you want me to lead you in the prayer? Because some people are like, you got to lead them in the prayer because Jesus is a type A. And he's like, oh, oh, you didn't say this word. You didn't say that phrase, right? Going to hell. <laughs> you know, people pray their own salvation prayers. I'm quite sure God gets the heart behind the prayer. So he asked this guy, he said, do you want to pray your own salvation prayer? And he said, sure. And they bowed their heads, and he put his head right on the mic so the whole church could hear it. And he said, dear Jesus, I'm not worth a damn. Now, that's where some people are going, you can't say damn in a salvation prayer. You can't say damn. You said damn. <laughs> you can't say damn in church. He's, he's going, he, is, he is damned. He's going to hell because he said damn. But the rest of the prayer was this, Jesus, I'm not worth a damn. But if you can save me, I want you in my life. Amen. Now that's a salvation prayer. See, I told that, and there are still some people focused on the fact that I said the word damn. Completely missing the fact that a dead person came back to life. You got to be willing. I mean, here, here's the thing I ask parents and grandparents all the time. And because we, we, listen, we do church different and, and we're always doing, and I, I get, I don't have, I, I ask younger people what's going on at all, at all times. Because I, I, I want to know what's coming next instead of being obsessed with what we've got now. And I ask parents and grandparents all the time, how many of you would be willing to give up your life for your children or your grandchildren? Like you would be willing to die for them. And, Parents and grandparents, I've never had one go, huh, no, don't like them. I mean, parents, <laughs> parents and grandparents always raise their hands. I'd be willing to give my life. I'd be willing to give my life. I'd be willing to give my life. And then I ask this question, then why won't you give up your music style? See, in the desire to have a comfortable worship service, we've coined a term that's nowhere in Scripture. It's called blended worship. It's where we try to keep everybody happy and nobody enjoys it. Like, seriously, half of the thing, you've got the choir up there singing Shine, Jesus, Shine, which isn't cool anymore, really. 
I'll get in trouble for that one. Not from here. There's some blogger. Um, anyway, <laughs> let me say this, and I'm going to move on. You've got to give up your comfort. You've got to give up your conformity. I think that conformity, conformity. Let me just say this, and this is going to get me in some hot water, um, but please hold your comments because I'll get in more hot water in the afternoon session today. Um, there are too many churches trying to conform to what a denomination's called them to be rather than who Jesus called them to be. Let me let you in on something. Every major denomination in America is dying. And trying to fix many of them is nothing more than rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Why would you conform to something that's dying? Why would you, why, why would, like, why do you listen to the captain of the Titanic tell you how to run your church? Why don't you do what God called you to do and be who God called you to be? Let me take it a step further. Not only are we trying to conform to denominations, we're trying to conform to an online audience that's never darkened the doors of our church. And many, many people in church today are trying to do church to impress other pastors rather than bless the people and minister to the people they have right in front of them every week. We're trying to put our, we're trying to, have you noticed the buzz terms? We're missional. Well, of course you're freaking missional. You're the church. <laughs> Duh! The church usually that said they're missional, the church that goes, we're missional, that usually means we've stopped growing. We've had churches, well, we're not attractional. Well, what, what, nobody's coming. Let me, let me say this about missional, because I know some of you guys are like, we're missional. Missional is nothing more than a buzz term that will not exist in church world in five years. Remember five years ago, everybody was postmodern. Now if you say you're postmodern, you get laughed at. Of course you're missional. You're the church. It's your job. Stop saying what Scripture says you are already and just go prove it by how your church operates in the community. Because, let me say this, if you're truly missional, you don't have to tell anybody. Missional. Number three, the recognition factor. I'll hit these last two really quick. And that's pastor language for we got 80 more minutes. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Skip down to verse 13. This is so cool. Look at this. Now, when Joshua was standing near Jericho, he went for a walk by himself, his leader, kind of getting some quiet time there. Now, when Joshua was standing near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, we're going to say, and a lot of scholars agree, and I believe this, this is Jesus. I love the picture with Jesus with a drawn sword in his hand. Not a bucket of suckers with a feathered hair trying to give everybody a hug. Drawn sword in his hand. Jesus kicks butt and takes names. Read Revelation 19. I like ultimate fighter Jesus. That's who I worship. Not one of the guys, not one of the lead singers from ABBA. I can't worship that guy. I worship Jesus. Jesus was not in a boy band, all right? Jesus Christ is Lord. Drawn sword in his hand, ultimate fighter, kicking butt, taking names, Jesus. That's the Jesus I love. God is graceful. Yeah, he kills people too. Love that. Here we go. Ananias and Sapphira, remember that? Killed people during the offering? Wouldn't you like for that to happen this Sunday? We're going to take an offering. If you don't give, God will kill you. Let's pray. Um, drawn sword in his hand, and this is, Joshua was so passionate about what God called him to. He said, he said, are you for us or for our enemies? Joshua walked up to Jesus. Well, whose side you on? Missional or attract- attractional? Baptist or Methodist? Episcopal or Catholic? Pick a side. Verse 14, neither. 
She's like, listen, you're not a captain. You don't pick me. I'm the captain. I pick you. Neither. Anybody sod? Idiot? That's interjection. Neither, he replied. But as as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. As soon as Joshua recognized Jesus, then Joshua fell face down. He was like, oh, crap. He's down on his face. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Completely changed when he recognized Jesus. Anderson is a small community. You've probably picked up on that. Where's the Starbucks? We don't have one. I mean, we're a small community. We really are. And you can drive around Anderson. We've got 172,000, or I'm sorry, 168,000 people in the county of Anderson. We're, we're a small community. So you might guess that when I go into a restaurant, it's kind of like Norm on Cheers. You know, if you watch Cheers, it's like, hey, what's up? Everybody kind of knows me. And, and, and that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. It's just weird when people come and sit down at my table for 15 minutes and talk without a breath. I'll talk about that later this afternoon. So... So, so you got you got these people. They come in. They come in and they kind of do all this stuff. And so I went to Chili's one day, and I'm sitting in Chili's and I'm kind of talking. And the waitress comes up, and I've got a philosophy, and this is just my philosophy. I'm like, be nice to the waitress and tip well. Be nice to the waitress and tip well. Be nice to the waitress and tip well, because waiter, waiters and waitresses in um, restaurants will not come to church because on Sunday they have to wait on the people that have been to church, and they're a holes. Straight up. I was in the restaurant industry. I almost didn't come to Jesus because of church people. on Church people. So tip well. Anyway, so yeah, somebody back here in the restaurant industry, like praise God. I'm a worship leader and a waiter. Anyway, so like Lee almost had to be. So she's standing there and she's kind of talking to her, kind of going back and forth. I was like, I'd like to invite you to, to church this week. She's like, oh, I'm new in town. I'd love to come to your church. She said, I'm already going to a church this week. I was like, where are you going? She said, I'm going to New Spring. I said, really? <laughs> she said, yes. She said, I went last week. I said, what'd you think? She said, well, it was all right. She said, but the preacher, he didn't preach. He wasn't there. We don't know why he was there, but I've heard he's good. And I'm going back Sunday to check that out. I was like, well, I go to New Spring. She said, what do you think about the preacher? I said, I don't like him. I just go for the worship. (laughs) Never told her who I was. Never told her because I wanted her to come and sit in one of these seats the next Sunday and have her little bulletin and be like. (laughs) See, here's the problem. She would have never spoke to me like that if she had recognized me. She would have never talked to me the way she talked to me If she had just recognized me, Joshua would have never talked to Jesus the way he spoke to Jesus if he would have recognized who Jesus is. And I think one of the reasons that we're having problems in church world today, if I could be honest, is we've got a lot of church leaders that don't even recognize Jesus anymore. Like, because when Joshua recognized him, face down, face plant, bam! That wasn't on the order of worship anywhere. Okay, we got, the, we got a plant. I don't see face plant on here. I don't, I, don't, I don't see that. 
See, one of the things that we do is we get so obsessed with taking our agenda, the question that we all have to wrestle with as church leaders is, are we building his church or are we asking him to build ours? We've got to recognize who Jesus is because when we recognize who Jesus is, the power hungry and the people in the church, they don't bother us anymore. I actually heard a pastor say one time, I've got this guy and he's the most powerful man in my church. And I'm like, let me tell you about the most powerful man in your church. You just haven't recognized the most powerful man in the church. Because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it's his church and his leaders. We've got to get back to recognizing who he is and what he's done. King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. With him, nothing is impossible at all. And he will build his church. And if we're recognizing him, that means we talk about him. Jesus. Jesus. The Bible says at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the name of Jesus. we Listen, you know what our agenda is every year? Jesus. Jesus. Leaders, let me just say this and I'll move on to the last point. When's the last time your leadership team at your church just got away and tried to, your best to focus on Christ? Like, don't miss this time. Like, at Unleash, you know what the, cool, you know what the coolest part about a conference is like this right here? It's not just the sessions. and the se- It's the meal that your team is going to share together tonight on the way back home. That's fun. But go away as a leadership team. Get somewhere with no technology. And just focus on Jesus. Because when we recognize him, we'll do whatever he called us to do. To do. Last, last thing, very quickly. This is... This is going to be fun. Number four, the strategy factor. Have you ever, like I'm a big guy. I'm six foot six. I weigh about 230. There's a lie in the world. Here's the lie. One size fits all. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The one size fits all. I'm here to tell you one size does not fit all. I've tried my best with one size. You put it on, pants are coming up to here. You know, you, I mean, one size does not fit all. And one of the problems in church world today is we want the one size fits all strategy. We think one strategy. I remember the first time I went snow skiing. I don't snow ski. I can't snow ski. I probably never will be able to snow ski, water ski, any kind of ski. But I remember the first time I went snow skiing, they took me out on, I signed up for lessons, and they taught me how to do the V-wedge. I don't know if you know what the V-wedge is. It's when you're skiing down the mountain, you do your feet like this, and and you kind of bend your knees a little bit, you kind of stop, and it's called the V-wedge. It stops you every time. I was a little kid. I was nine years old. I weighed 482 pounds. I was a roly-poly. And I got to the top of this hill. I got, went down a little hill. My uncle said, well, come over here on this hill. I went over here on this hill, really big hill. And they didn't teach me to go side to side. So I was like, it's skiing. You just point your skis and you just go. So I pointed my skis. I go. And like 15 seconds later, I'm going Mach 14. Man, my hair's on fire. And my uncle screams, do the V wedge. You, want, you know what happened? I did my feet like this. I bent my knees like this. This leg went this way. This leg went this way. My feet went. I mean, I, I mean that little thing at the bottom, you know, that little, little fence. I'm going through the fence. I'm like 14 people died. Seven are missing. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and I realized there's some strategies that might work for some people, but they don't work for everybody. One of the problems, you know what? I could write a book. I could write a book today on seven steps you can take to grow your church, and there are church planners that would buy it and do it. There's a word for that. Stupid. 
It blows my mind that there are church planners and pastors that will listen to people tell them how to build their church. Experts that never have planted a church, never have pastored a church, never have led a church. Heck, they've never led anything in their life. But there's some sort of experts and pastors and church leaders will listen to them. We're the only people dumb enough to do that. If I went out and wrote a book on surgery, there's not one doctor in America that would buy it. Because I'm not a surgeon. The strategy factor. There's not a strategy that will grow your church other than this. Listen to God, do what he says. That'll work every time. Seven steps. Step number two, listen to God, do what he says. Step number three, listen to God, do what he says. Step number, listen to God, do what he flipping says. That's, that's the emphasis point right there. Because look at this. Let me, let, me, let me just read this. Joshua chapter 6. This is the strategy of Jesus. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, look at this. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings and its fighting men. Now at that point right there, Joshua went, no, I don't see that. I don't see that because verse 1 just said it's tightly shut up and no one's coming in or out. And you just told me you delivered my hands. I'm not seeing that at all. That means sometimes God sees things that we can't see. That's why we got to listen to him and do what he says because he's smarter. Verse 3, march. Now listen to this. If you're a warrior, Joshua was a warrior. He had fought some battles. This is the strategy. March around the city once with all the armed men. Just march around the city. Just march around the city. Do this for six days. Stop. Stop, God. Okay, here's, here's what do we do with the archers? Just march around the city. What do we do with the cow? Just march around the city. We got some guys with some swords. They're really good. Yeah, just, just walk around the city. Just one, so we're going to walk around the city. Yeah, that's all I want you to do. Walk around the city. All right. Verse 4. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. So you put the worship leaders out in front. The artsy people get the lead, all right? So anyway, on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. So right before you see the miracle happen, you're probably going to have to work the hardest. March around the city seven times with priests blowing the trumpets. Okay, see, so God, God, here's the deal. I read seven steps to take it over a city. It said, it said, like, like, God, this doesn't matter. We're just going to walk around. Yeah, that's all I want you to do is walk. Except on the seventh day, I want you to walk seven times. Okay. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up every man straight in. Now, if you're a leader, no, like Joshua didn't go, that'll work. That's awesome. We don't need warriors. We don't need bows. We don't need arrows. We don't need spears. We don't need swords. We don't need shields. We need some trumpets, and we're going to walk. Like when Joshua went back and cast this vision to the men, once again, they were like, okay, the last time you cast a vision, it hurt for several weeks. This is just stupid. I've never heard anything this dumb in my life. But there's a strategy here. And here, let me just say this. Let me just say this for those that get married to strategy. This is the only time in Scripture God ever told them to take over a city this way. Joshua didn't write a book and go on a book tour on how to take over cities. God never told him to do it this way again. And some people will look at this and go, well, why in the world did God ask him to do it this way? Here it is, and listen to me. In church world, we need to be dependent on the supernatural way more than on strategy. Because the church has traded, we've traded in supernatural for strategy, and we look at a strategy that might work. Listen, let me say this. I'm not against strategy, but listen to me. 
Vision comes, then strategy. Never strategy before vision. Never strategy before vision. You can't go and listen to eight steps, seven steps, five steps, four steps, 14 steps, and write it down and say, I think that's going to work without the supernatural power of God. If the supernatural power of God is not at work in your church, I don't care what freaking strategy you have. I don't care if you have Bill Hybels preaching, Joel Osteen preaching, James Dobson counseling, T.D. Jakes raising money for you. Your church isn't going to work if we don't have the supernatural power of God. My gosh, we preach the Bible. I've had pastors tell me, I can't preach the supernatural. Oh, so that's up to the twilight people? The werewolf and the Dracula? And that's just freaking weird. I'm just telling you, man, I'm not even into all that stuff. Some of our artsy worship people are. I don't even understand that. God has the corner on the market when it comes to supernatural. My gosh, virgin birth, supernatural. You've never seen anybody in your high school pull that one off. (laughs) Who's the daddy? Oh, I don't have a daddy. He didn't have a daddy. Mmm. Mm, I mean, you never saw that one. Some of you knew what that was. <laughs> Jesus lived a sinless life. That's supernatural. Most people think it's because he wasn't married. <laughs> the miracles that Jesus performed, supernatural. The whole fish and chips thing in John chapter 6, that's a cool deal. That's a neat party trick right there. Coming back from the dead, that's supernatural. Try that at your next party. Hey, guys, watch this. (laughs) I mean, that's supernatural. (laughs) Too many church leaders are trying to get back, get back, get back. I want to get back to Acts 2, and God's going, Acts 2, heck, that's where I started. Why would you try to get back to the book of Acts? That's where, that was the foundation. 3,000 people in one day, oh, it's just about the numbers. Well, if it's, the numbers aren't important to you, don't count your offering this Sunday. Hypocrite. Strategy. In 2002, we, um, we developed this strategy. And the strategy people right now that are watching, are, you're going nuts. I mean, you're going, strategy is important. Sure, after vision and direction from God. But we wanted to grow the church. We want to see more people show up. So we did this strategy. It was called direct mail. It was Easter 2002. We wanted 1,000 people to come to church. Praying to God for 1,000 people. And the way to get 1,000 people to your church was direct mail. Now, I'm not against direct mail. We've used it. I think it's weird that some churches do a direct mail piece like every other week. Holy Bible. I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> well, I disagree. Well, you know, it's, it's fine. Can. We said we're going to send out a direct mail piece. Easter 2002. We're planning on a thousand people coming to church. 573 showed up. 573. Now, some people are going, you need to rejoice at the 573. Uh-uh, I'm a leader. I prayed for 1,000. I didn't ask for 573. I asked for 1,000. I was mad. But God had to break me, and God had to show me, you know what? You were depending on a direct mail piece. You weren't depending on me. So in August of that same year, August of 2002, 
I was in the middle of what I would consider to be the driest, most dull, boring series that I'd ever been in. Have you ever gotten in the middle of the series as a pastor and begged God to either send the rapture, kill you, or end the... I mean, it's just, it's like, I hate this. I hate this. Week two of that particular series, we had four, 504 people show up. We had, we had 504 people in our church. The next week, 970 showed up. Like, I, I thought I, I thought they had, like, we have a jockey lot in Anderson. I thought they were all going to the jockey lot, and somebody lied to them. And I, I don't know. Like, I was standing on stage with Lee, our worship leader, and these people kept streaming in. I said, what are they doing? He said, I don't know. I said, do you think they'll be back? He said, probably not. I was like, I don't think they will either. 970 people showed up. We didn't send out a direct mail piece. We did not... Uh, have a newspaper ad. We didn't do a billboard. We didn't do a website. We didn't do direct mail. I didn't jump out of a helicopter with a bunch of Easter eggs. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm telling you, we don't know. Well, did 970 people show up the next week? No, 1,096 did. And within four weeks, we're sitting at 1,600 people. And we don't know why. We don't know. Every time I tell that story, it's going to happen today. There's a pastor or a staff member here. You're going to corner one of our staff members and you're going to go, what really happened? (laughs) We don't know. It was a God thing. It happened again in 2006. 2006, I came out here on a January night, on a Sunday night. I sat right there on this stage. I looked out at this room, and I wept. And I said, dear God, what have we done? We built a 2,500-seat auditorium, and I'm not sure there's this many people in our county. I've heard there's more. I'm just not. I sat right there and wept and said, dear God, we've made the biggest mistake we've ever made in our life. We've wasted this money. I, don't, I, I was a wreck. We moved into the building of February. We had 4,000 people coming. By October, we had 8,000. We don't know why. No, like the standard answer at New Spring Church is this. I don't know. (laughs) I promise you. Every time a pastor calls, I don't know. You ask somebody, how do you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We We are the I don't know capital of the world. Nobody, see here's the deal. Here's the thing we've discovered. If you can fully explain what's going on in your church, God probably isn't involved. I don't know. But here's what I do know. God wants your church to thrive. God wants your church to be successful. And God wants your church to grow and reach more people. More people come to your church means more souls in heaven. I mean, you just preach the gospel. You talk about Jesus and people get saved. And I'm discovering more and more that I don't think the church has even began to see the potential of what God has for the church. I'll close with this. At Christmas, we um, had a bunch of people over to our house. Lucretia likes having people over her house. She's got the gift of hospitality, and she loves to cook. And, like, if she knows people are coming over, she'll cook for three days. I mean, she's, she's from Georgia, good South Georgia girl. You know what I'm saying? 
man, those South Georgia girls are great. They're awesome. And then she can cook. And she's awesome. So we invited a bunch of people over to our house, and we asked them to bring something too. And so they, they all brought all this stuff. So we've got all this food in our kitchen. It's Christmas. And my wife made her famous white chocolate fudge cake. Um, and it's, I mean, we just had food. It was like food everywhere. I'd never seen that much food. And so we prayed. You know, you always pray before you eat. And you, what we really should pray is, dear God, forgive us for the gluttony we're about to commit. But we, we pray God is great or whatever. We prayed. And then everybody went through the line. We got turkey. We had dressing. We had real potatoes with real butter. We don't do the fake butter. Real macaroni and cheese. And by the way, if you make macaroni and cheese, please make it with real cheese, not fat-free cheese, because that's insulting to God. And, the, and, and so, so we, made, we, made all this, we made all this food. all this food. And we go through, and we didn't get the little chinette plates. We got the plates that it takes two hands to carry like a man. Even the women were carrying those plates because we're in the South, and that's how we roll. And so we were carrying all these plates around. And we, we got in. I mean, I, we had this big long table everybody's eating food all my friends are eating their food all the all my friends in here are eating the food we had people all over the house eating food we went to the bathroom one time there's a girl in there eating food when there's food everywhere and and so so we were we were eating food and i'm the first one to eat because i'm the guy i'm the guy like some people they're like okay we're gonna eat food and we're gonna wait for a little while then we're gonna eat dessert that's not how you do it it says in first hesitations chapter three verse two thou shalt eat dessert immediately following a meal and then later on i mean you just eat them both times and so so, 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 so we go back in the kitchen, and, and, and I, I wanted dessert, and I wanted to be, be the first to get the white chocolate fudge cake at your house. You know, you got the gift of hospitality. Uh-uh. I said, Lucretia had the gift of hospitality. You got the gift of eating. So, so we walked in. I walked into the kitchen, and I'm getting ready to cut the cake. I'm, literally, I'm getting ready to cut the cake, and, and the, I felt the Holy Spirit talk to me and say, turn around and look. And I turned around and looked, and there was all this food left. There was all this food left. It was just everywhere. It was all this food left. And I'm getting ready to cut the cake. There's all this food left. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of food left. And God spoke to my I promise you, on Christmas night, God spoke to my heart in the kitchen and said, you know what? There's more food left in my kitchen too. You think you've seen some good stuff the first 10 years? There's more food in the kitchen. There's more where that come from. You think you loaded up your plate? Boy, you can go to the kitchen and get seconds again. You haven't even began to see what I can do. And I'm convinced that if we as church leaders would get on fire for the one who called us and saved us and will sustain us and we will do what he called us to do and stop trying to please groups of people but please the one who called us and give him everything, there's more food in the kitchen. We haven't even seen what he wants to do. He didn't say, I want something. He said, I want everything. I want everything. I want your staff hiring process. I want your budget. I want your building. I want your future plans. I want your dreams. I'm the God that did not die so you could do church your way. I'm the God that died and called you so you could do church my way. I want everything. What would happen? If we as church leaders would get completely unselfish and take hands off and go, you gave everything, you can have everything, let's roll. It would blow our minds what he would do. Jesus, today, right now, I declare to you, Lord God, once again in front of all these leaders, This is your church, and everything is yours. The vision, the plans, 
the dreams, the hopes, the staff, the volunteers, the people that will be here Sunday, the focus, the youth, the children, the nursery, the missions, our partnership with Kenya, whatever you want us to do with human trafficking and rescuing there, God, I'm just declaring to you, God, it's yours. We give you everything. And my prayer, God, is here today, God, that we would not strive, leave here striving to be what every other church in America is, but we would leave here striving to be the church you have called us to be, surrendering everything. God, I feel like there's some leaders in this room holding back. Maybe it's out of fear. God, you, may you bring us to the point of desperation. God, where we, God, we want your presence every Sunday more than we want anything else. God, that your presence in our church services would be unexplainable and undeniable. God, that we'd be willing to sacrifice, even if it means sacrificing our personal preferences in order to go to the land that you've promised. Jesus, that we would fully recognize you Recognize who you are. Jesus, we would depend way more on the Holy Spirit than we would some unholy strategy. God, we would get vision and surrender everything. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.